The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and I'm honored to be joined today by Mr. Eric Smith. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, you bet. 2020 is gone. <laughs> In the past. In the Out of room. here. Thank God. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's forget it. So uh, Eric is the Director of Operations at uh, Form Factor. Uh, you in, uh, what's it, Dublin? Is that in Form? Livermore. In Livermore. Livermore, yeah. Okay. Um, U.S. Navy veteran. That's right. Thank you so much for your service. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, born in Seattle, Washington, and uh, lives in Livermore, California. That's right. His uh, wife is a beautiful lady named Maria. Absolutely. Uh, kids, he's got uh, Sean, who is 17, Isabel, 16, and Scarlett, who is seven. And they got a three-year-old dog named Scout. That's right. And in-house, you've got mother-in-law. Yep. you got a busy full household house, going house. on. Yep, absolutely. So uh, the way that uh, you and I met is I actually worked with Maria, your wife, uh, for years. And you and I met on a few different occasions at uh, different uh, restaurants and bars and work, yep. work events and that kind of stuff. Um, so we talked about Sean for a second. He's a quarterback at Livermore High School, right? Yep, that's right. I follow him on uh, Facebook when, well, uh, probably following uh, Maria's posts all over the place as a proud mom. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like in COVID for someone who is, uh, you know, a, a local sports star? Is he looking at colleges or are colleges looking at him? Yeah, uh, he's looking, they're looking. Um, it's it's tough because he's losing his senior year. Uh, right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big bummer. Um, but, you know, the good thing is he... Uh, performed at a pretty high level last year, his first year uh, starting at the varsity level and um, got, uh, you know, some good, good, uh, you know, performance on film and got recognized. So um, and, you know, we've been able to go to camps and showcases and things like that so he can still get out there and get some reps and, uh, you know, show what he's got. And, um, you know, it's not the same as getting out on the field and, and playing real tackle football and, you know, trying to compete for a championship for Livermore and all that that we had hoped would happen this year but uh uh you know yeah he's 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 still excited he wants to play at the next level um he's got two formal offers uh from a couple of schools so far and um uh, and he's applied and got accepted to some other schools where uh you know he may he has options you know he, he may take a uh, an offer and go play at a smaller school or he may go to a big school and walk on and see you know and compete so we'll see what happens yeah it's gotta suck it's uh, senior in high school. You're the quarterback, you know. Oh my god, I, I just, uh, I actually, I, I put a Facebook message up or something, or sent a message to Maria a while back. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be the worst thing for Sean ever. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. It's it's a real bummer. I mean, you know, not only losing the actual uh, football season, but I mean, just going to school. You know, he's losing the social interaction and. Um, you know, doing everything by Zoom and, and all that is, you know, it's in some ways, maybe it's preparing him a little bit for kind of, you know, managing his own time and being on his own, you know, when he goes off to college and all that, because it's a little different. But at the same time, I mean, just 
missing out on that senior year high school. That's a, that's a major year in most people's lives, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a bummer, you know, he, it, it's amazing though. I mean, him and my other daughter, all of them, they're kind of taking it, you know, I think it's, it's harder on the parents than it is on them. I mean, they, kids adapt so easily. They're, they're good with the technology. Um, he's still, you know, leading workouts with his buddies and lifting and all those kind of things that you got to do to stay, to stay prepared. So he's, um, you know, not just sitting in his room all day, but it's, uh, it's still it's a pretty big bummer. Yeah. So how, how did they do last year in his junior year? Uh, they did well. So it was the best season they've had in, uh, I want to say 15 to 20 years. You know, we're, we haven't been in Livermore, definitely as long as we've been in Livermore. Uh, this was the best that uh, Livermore High had done. Um, uh, and uh, they went to the playoffs, lost in the first round of the playoffs. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, this, you know, not just Sean, but this whole group of kids that he has, that, you know, that his uh, senior class, they've they've been coming up playing football together in the youth levels. And then, you know, now through freshmen and JV and now varsity. And, and it's been a, a really talented, hardworking group of boys that um, all of us coaches and, uh, you know, uh, parents have kind of been waiting for this group to get to the uh, varsity level. And, um, it, you know, kind of known for a while, it would be the, the best chance Livermore's had in a long time. And, and, and they did well last year. And the thought was this year, it was like the year Livermore could actually, uh, compete in the East Bay Athletic League, um, right? So uh, you know, we hopefully still get to see that. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sounding pretty pessimistic at this point because it's way past when the the season would have already ended. But um, there is still a chance that we're gonna kick this thing off in January, and um, you know, we're all praying and and crossing our fingers and hoping that's gonna happen. So we'll see. Oh, that'd be awesome. Hey, yeah. COVID sucks. <laughs> it sucks, man. It sucks. <laughs> you know. So how are you? You kind of talked about it for a second, but. How are the kids dealing with uh, the distance learning? I know I've talked to some people that said, oh, no problem at all. I've talked to other people that my kid is just not dealing with it at all and like failing out of uh, all um, studies. So how, how are your kids kind of uh, dealing with the um, social distance learning? Yeah, I mean, each one of them a little bit different. Luckily, none of them are, are failing or their, their grades haven't dropped off because of it, which is um, which is great, uh, you know, um, but definitely, uh, you know, I think it's it's hard to stay focused on the uh, the, the class, the meeting, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, uh, they've got other distracting, you know, I, I, I hear from Sean's teacher that he's looking at his phone a lot during the class or whatever. And um, well, you know, I, I but, can imagine <laughs> I, I turn off my phone. <laughs> to do this podcast and like when I'm going out for a sales meeting or something, I just leave it behind because as soon as I get distracted, even if I have it on vibrate, I'm like, Oh God, I got to reach for it. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? So I can only imagine what it's like for a high school kid. Yeah. Cause that might be a, a girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, even, even before this COVID stuff, you know, I mean this, this generation, these, these high school kids, it's like, uh, so much of their social interaction is on social media. Um, you know, they're, you know, there's so many different platforms they're on. And so, you know, they're constantly interacting with their phone. And now that, you know, they're locked down and they're trying to maintain these social bubbles and not go out and, and mix in the real physical world, you know, it's even more kind of, you know, important, like everything they get is through their phone right now. So, um, so yeah, it's a distraction. And, uh, but, you know, like I said, he's, he's, he's powered through it. Um, he's, he's got a 3.7 GPA. He's doing well. Um, my daughter, Isabel, she's got a 4.4 GPA. She's taken four AP classes and 
uh, as a junior and and uh she's kick she's really kicking butt brainiac um, yeah and and uh and beautiful too and so i mean well you know who knows what she's going to do in life a lot of a lot of great things i think um the younger one scarlet i mean probably struggles the most is keeping a seven-year-old in front of the the computer for hours is tough i mean luckily the the schools are very flexible you know they they kind of do 20 minutes then a 20 minute break 20 minutes 20 minutes you know it's kind of they give them a lot of breaks and a lot of freedom but um, you know, when I'm working from home or, or whatever in the morning and, and she's on, you just, I, I feel for that teacher. I mean, you just hear her constantly, can you please sit down, Bobby? Can you, no, Bobby <laughs> over here, please. You know, like she's just constantly kind of, you know, calling out kids who are getting distracted or doing whatever. So, I mean, it must be really tough on the teachers to, to manage this right now. I can't imagine. Well, at kids at that age, I would, I would expect that a teacher physically in front of the kids it's almost like herding cats right yeah doing it over a (laughs) zoom meeting forget about it exactly exactly so uh when i worked with uh your wife maria uh we worked in it staffing which i'm still in Mm -hmm. she went to school to be a nurse right that's right so is she working with like covid patients right now What, what 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 kind of nursing does she do so she's a lvn and she's still going to school to be an rn she she works at a uh uh, kind of a uh, assisted living facility that has a skilled nursing facility at at the kind of old folks home. It's a, it's a pretty high end place. They've kind of got you know apartments and you know they're on site uh, nursing and and so she um, isn't dealing directly with COVID patients, but obviously those uh, those kind of assisted living facilities are some of the hardest hit um, oh, yeah. in you know uh, of all. Uh, of all types of places, you know, since COVID started. So they've been extremely cautious, a lot of uh, protocol, you know, and they check in testing daily almost. Um, they've been really lucky. I think they've done a, not just lucky, I mean, I think they've done a great job to keep keep it out. I mean, they haven't had a major outbreak. Um, you know, I think just recently was the first time that they had a few infections and they were, you know, it didn't go widespread through the facility um, but yeah, they're, you know, she's on the front line still and in a place where, um, it's high risk. And, uh, so I'm kind of always, um, a little concerned. I'm going into work, you know, al- almost every day. And, um, you know, so I kind of have to monitor what's going on with her. You know, has she been exposed or is she at risk? So I can kind of judge, should I go into work and that kind of stuff? It's a, it's a tricky, tricky thing right now, but she's loving it. I mean, she, this is what she was meant to do. She, uh, uh, you know, ever since I met her, I think she wanted to to be a nurse, and um, uh, you know, I just super proud of her for all the. I mean, she was you know going to school, doing online classes, homework all the time, tests, just working her butt off. You know, as a full time mom, working full time and going to school uh, to kind of um, you know go fulfill her dream. I mean, you should have her on this podcast. She has a ton of ambition. You know, um, <laughs> you know she. Uh, she, she really worked hard to get there and, um, uh, you know, she's doing what she always wanted to do. Um, I mean, I think she, her ultimate goal is to be in labor and labor and delivery. Cause she just, she just wants to be around, uh, babies and moms oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, got a little bit of school left to get the RN degree and then hopefully she'll be able to go and take that next step. That's great. It's a great place for her. Um, just knowing her as a coworker and a friend. I mean, she's one of the most caring people I know. And uh, just she's so much fun too. She got that infectious laugh. Yeah. But uh, we have uh, my wife Carissa and I lived next door to a friend of ours, Celeste, who's a NICU um, uh, nurse. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, that 
my hats are off to them because when our son Johnny is two years old now, uh, he was in the NICU for about six hours after he was born. Um, for something, they were just monitoring him. But I saw some of those parents in there that were dealing with real issues. Yeah, uh, There was one family that was in there for, I think he said, six months. Wow. And the kid was born at like under two pounds or something like that. But these nurses, the things that they deal with every day and the heartbreak they have to go through, oh, yeah. it's it, it takes a whole different type of person to go and do that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's amazing. And we need them so much. Yep. So um, you... Uh, did did you grow up in Seattle proper? Were you in a suburb or downtown Seattle? Where were you? No, yeah, in the city, uh, right in the city. Um, not really downtown, but um, a neighborhood called Ballard. That's kind of in North Seattle, Northwest Seattle. Um, kind of a, a, a large Scandinavian sort of population in that part of town. Um, which you know, my uh, on my mom's side were were uh, from Iceland, so kind of a. You know, a lot of Swedish and Iceland. Well, you should be a Norwegian Vikings fan then. You should be a Vikings uh, yeah. fan. <laughs> I know you're a Seahawks fan. I'm a big Seahawks fan. Uh, it's going to be hard to kick that one. But um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it was, you know, I'm a city boy. I grew up in the city, uh, you know, went to Seattle public schools. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people who have never been to Seattle kind of think of it as like maybe not that big of a city. You know, it's kind of that you know, way up there. Nobody ever gets up there. They think it's kind of a small place, but it's a pretty big city. I mean, we had, you know, 10 public high schools and a few other, um, uh, you know, private schools. So it was a, you know, a, a fairly large, uh, large city. So I'm into a lot of uh, the Seattle music. So did you ever see any of the bands locally there, like the Pearl Jams, the, uh, some of the Soundgarden, any of those bands when, back in the day? So I never saw any of those bands live at, at a concert, but, you know, I was, I was in middle school and early high school when kind of the, you know, those bands were really coming on the scene. Um, and so, you know, funny story, actually, a, a guy I went to high school with, his sister was dating the drummer from Soundgarden. Uh, and so he would always go party at their house. They, they had kind of just made a lot of money, you know, and it was kind of when they so were, she was dating Matt up. Cameron. Yeah. So, you know, it was like, uh, I didn't even know his name, but you're right. Yeah. If that's his name, then yeah. <laughs> now he's the drummer for Pearl Jam. Okay. So okay. he's like, uh, he, he's that. been in Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. Yeah. He's an amazing drummer. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was kind of a fun time to come up, you know, grow up in Seattle with the whole grunge thing kicking off. And, um, uh, and, you know, Kurt Cobain, I remember, you know, the, the day that, that, that he passed and ever, you know, everyone went out to his house and we were all kind of gathered around out there and stuff like that. And, um, uh, you know, it was, uh, trying to think of who from Seattle I actually have seen in concert. I mean, I've been to a lot of concerts, but I don't know if I've ever actually seen a Seattle, uh, you know, native Seattleite in, in, uh, in concert. So I just watched, uh, there was a documentary called hype. Uh, that's all about all of the hype that went into the Seattle grunge. They didn't, the, the most of the bands didn't even like being called grunge right. because they're like, no, no, we're just a band and we're wearing flannel because it's cold up here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're in our garage. It's cold. Or <laughs> 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 yep. But uh, that was uh, a lot of them, a lot of the bands from up there were like, no, we're just a rock and roll band and uh, we just happen to be from Seattle. And then uh, when uh, Sub Pop uh, kind of took over and started running the machine. From up there, all of them just kind of got lumped into one spot, and uh, that uh, documentary hype was pretty cool to watch because it's just kind of all of those bands from up there came making fun of popular culture yeah. on how they all picked up on it. 
Right. Yeah. No, it was interesting. I mean, it's, it definitely kicked off sort of a, a revolution in music and, and steered rock in a, in a certain direction, but it wasn't, but if you think about grunge, it was kind of a short lived thing. And it kind of probably for that reason, they wouldn't, they didn't want to really, once you put a name to it, they're like, I'm not into that anymore. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's just music, bro. And, uh, but no, I actually, one of my best friends is a musician that uh, I grew up with. He's a drummer, learned guitar. He's a producer now. And, um, uh, you know, so he's actually still there kind of uh, uh, working with a lot of up and coming Seattle artists. And it's cool to see stuff that he's putting together from time to time. So, uh, you, you know, me, I, I, music I love music, man. Yeah. So it's just like it's such an interesting world now with uh, all the different avenues uh, to get your music out there, you know, yourself, you know, so you can produce it yourself, record it yourself, distribute it yourself. Um, and it's just it, it's such a different world now. So it's oh, it's, yeah. it's exciting to. Uh, I talked to all those folks. So what year did you graduate from high school? 98. Okay. Yep. And uh, were you a good student? <laughs> Not really. Uh, honestly, um, you know, I was, uh, I was a little less concerned with being a good student, more concerned with where the party was at and things <laughs> like that um, in high school, which, you know, I look back on and, and regret a little bit. But, you know, it's uh, the, the cool thing is having kids now going through it. Um, they're just so much better than I was, you know, both as a student and uh, not getting into the temptations that, that were there, you know, Seattle in the nineties, there was a, it was a, it was a fun place to be, you know, but, um, uh, you know, I, I ended up, I could have been a good student. You know, I was, I, I was smart enough, I think, you know, but I didn't work hard. It's kind of was after high school where I really learned how to, uh, to work harder and, um, what I was capable of and things like that. Yeah, I was uh, I was a horrible student. Um, I've said it before. I had to actually uh, beg one of my teachers to let me out. You know, one of those things where it's like, I don't want to come back and you don't want me back. So let's figure something out here. Um, but uh, same as you, I wasn't ready. Uh, I wasn't motivated. Um, I think the real world had to slap me in the face a little bit to yeah. actually find that motivation. Right. Um, so I, I'm there with you on that. So you entered the Navy right out of high school, right? Yeah, pretty much. I, I did get a job for about six months, um, kind of while I was waiting to head off to boot camp. Uh, what were you doing? What was the job? It was uh, working in an electronics uh, manufacturing place, actually, we were doing uh, building like amplifiers, equalizers, stuff that you probably use, you know, making a podcast like this. So, you know, the seven second delay machines for radio stations and uh, stuff like that. My buddy worked there uh, and he basically, you know, talked to his boss and said, hey, my you know, this guy is going to be leaving in six months, so he's not going to be a long term thing. But if, you know, we're busy, you know, can you come in? So I just came in and started working with them. And it was fun. It was a, it was a really cool job. Great company. Um, little small company called Symmetrics. I'm not even sure if they're still around, but uh, uh, great, great, uh, you know, kind of first working full time working experience before I headed off to the Navy. And, you know, the the Navy was kind of the option for me since I wasn't a great student. You know, it was kind of like uh I had always thought I would go to college and then it was like all of a sudden I'm halfway through my senior year going, I don't have the grades. I don't have the money. I haven't even applied anywhere. <laughs> you know, Navy's sounding pretty good, you know. <laughs> and so, so what 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 made you choose the Navy? Well, some of that. But I mean, it was also, you know, uh, the Navy specifically over other uh, yeah. branches. Um, well, it's a funny story. I actually had enlisted in the Army uh, because it, I was kind of looking at it like this. I was I was going you know, I don't really think I'm going to go and be, a uh, in the military for 20 or 30 years. I, it wasn't really my, my goal. It was like, let me go and see the world, do something, learn a skill, uh, you know, um, experience that, then go to college afterwards. Right. That was kind of my goal. So I, 
I thought, you know, if I'm, if that's what I'm going to do, if I'm going to go in for three, four years, something like that, and then go to school, like I want to actually be a soldier and do something really kind of, you know, get out there and fight and, and, you know, all this stuff that sounds fun, right. When you're a, a 18 year old kid. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I enlisted in the army to be an army ranger. And, and so, you know, that's special forces and you go and do, uh, you know, jumping out of planes, airborne stuff. You do the frogman stuff. You, it sounded awesome. I'm like, okay, bad I'm going to be a badass. <laughs> I'm going to do a bunch of cool stuff. And then I'm going to get out. But then I, uh, you know, I, I, I met a guy, I think he was a, a friend of my mom's who, um, who was in the military. And he told me, he said, you know, it does sound really fun, but once you get out there, it's not everything that, you know, it looks like in the commercials. And, um, and honestly, if you want to, you know, if, if your goal isn't to be a lifetime soldier, um, you should think about maybe doing something where you learn a skill set that you can apply in the real world because at army ranger, yeah, you're going to, you know, you're going to know how to shoot. You're going to know how to jump out of planes. You're going to know how to do a lot of things, but not very many of the things that you're going to know how to do will apply in the real world. Um, so I thought a lot about that. And, uh, and then I, I kind of at the last second told the army guy, I think I'm going to back out of this, but as soon as I did, I walked right into the Navy office and, uh, and, and said, what do you guys got for me? And, um, and they had a pretty cool program, uh, the Navy nuclear propulsion program where you, you really learn how to, uh, uh kind of everything about the, the ship's, uh, onboard, uh, power system and propulsion system, uh, on the nuclear aircraft carriers and submarines. Um, and, uh, you kind of get a well-rounded, you know, mechanical, electrical, chemical, nuclear engineering type of uh, education before you actually go out to your uh, ship and apply it. Um, so I was like, okay, this this sounds more like something I can do afterwards, or or at least some something out of there I'll be able to take and, and apply in the real world afterwards. So I went and I did that, um, and uh, it was a great decision. I mean, the, you know, uh, amazing experience being in the Navy. I really highly recommend uh, you know, military service to, to younger folks these days. Um, and especially something, uh, like submarine service or, or something where it's a kind of a close knit, uh, group of guys that you work with. Um, you know, I, I think, it, you know, some of my best friends to this day are the guys I served with in the military, just, a, uh, you know, great bonding experience. You learn so much, you, uh, you, you can't, you can't fail. I mean, if, if you fail, you're not just failing yourself, you're failing your whole crew and everybody around you. So you really kind of learn how to, um, you know, how to sort of value those relationships and, and work hard for other people, not just yourself, you know. So what uh, you were just talking about a submarine, you were stationed on a submarine, right? That's right. So w what was the submarine? Uh, the USS Topeka. Uh, so it's a fast attack, Los Angeles class submarine. Um, and what's what's a Los Angeles class? What's that mean? So, you know, when, uh, so first of all, there's kind of two main types of submarines. There's uh, the, what they call the fast attacks, which are a little smaller. Uh, they, you know, shoot torpedoes uh, underwater and sometimes shoot um, uh, missiles, you know, but not, not nuclear missiles, um, uh, tomahawks, basically tomahawk missiles out of the, out of the, uh, uh, the ship. Um, and then there's the boomers or the, the um, uh, you know, what, what they call the SSBNs. These ones are the ones that carry know, many nuclear, uh, warheads on board. Um, you know, those ones are kind of more of just a deterrent, right? They're, they're out there. We hope we never have to use them. 
Uh, it's kind of a, a silent threat to the rest of the world saying, hey, you know, you don't know if we've got 24 nuclear warheads parked off your coast right now, so don't mess with us. You know, right. you can hit the button at any minute kind of a thing. We hope we don't have to, but we could. Right. Uh, the fast attacks are actually a little more agile. They, you know, get into the tactical warfare, um, uh, kind of go on more uh, tactical missions to go and, and uh, you know, gain intelligence from a you know from a certain country and things like that um los angeles is just kind of one of the generations of the fast attack so okay uh you know you it's i think been around since the you know the early 80s um i want to say is kind of when uh, and i might be off on that but i think around there is when the, the los angeles class uh, uh kind of became the flagship you know modern um uh fast attack submarine so are they can, can you like go under radar when you're in these or can people uh, can can other um adversaries see where you're at underwater in those submarines or how does that work so i don't know anything about it <laughs> yeah no i mean well that's kind of the they call the submarine service the silent service you know where um uh, it's very difficult to detect a, a u.s submarine i mean it, it's it's uh, it's all about staying quiet, right? So everything on the ship is uh, tuned to um, not make noise. You know, if you have a little tick in your reduction gears, tick, 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 you know, that's a kind of a, a, a signal that can kind of go out into the water and other people can hear that and know that that's not a natural sound. There's a, there's a, there's a boat out there somewhere, you know, and they can kind of hone in on that. And so it's, it's, um, they don't see you, but they can hear you. Uh, but, you know, U.S. submarines are very silent and, you know, we're taught to not make a lot of noise on board. And so, you know, um, you know, it's in, in the in kind of most other Navy ships, you're wearing your nicely shine boots and you're kind of all you know dressed up looking good and all that kind of stuff on a submarine. The only people that ever see you is the rest of your crew. We wear tennis shoes. We wear kind of like a, a mechanic sort of, you know, we call it the poopy suit, you know, the coveralls that you sort of wear. We're, we're a little uh, less militarized when we're out there. It's more of a, uh, you know, let's just be quiet and do our job kind of a thing. And, you know, you drop a wrench and that's like the biggest, you know, <laughs> the biggest thing you can, you know, everyone, everyone comes around. What are you doing? You know, I mean, most of the time when we're out there, we're in a part of the, the ocean where, um, you know, we're not that worried about it. We're not really in a, in a, uh, you know, in a, a war like uh, situation. We're kind of gather, you know, uh, maybe, you know, our radio men are kind of picking off a signal and we're kind of getting some intelligence from a, a country, you know, trying to communicate something like that. But, you know, if we go into some of those areas where we're, you know, not really supposed to be or, or something like that, that's when we have to get ultra quiet and we kind of tune all of the, uh, the motors on the pumps and everything to the right, um, frequency to be com like completely silent. We go into ultra silent mode, that kind of a thing. Um, and that, that's really how you would get detected is if you, if you make noise or, you know, turn on the wrong pump or drop a wrench or, you know, something like that. So when you're when you're tuning them to uh, the perfect, um, uh, what do you say? Tuning them to the perfect Frequencies. frequency. Yeah. Does it depend on the frequency? Does it depend on how deep you are, or does it just once you go underwater, that's it's all the same, no matter how deep you are underwater? Yeah, I think it's all the same. I mean, basically, what what most submarines do is they go do sound trials, um, and there's a couple of underwater um, radio towers, basically that. You know, they're just out there. You don't know about them, but there's these big radio towers underwater, almost like a, a goalpost in football or something. And the submarine just drives through them, uh, 
you know, kind of turning off certain pump, turning on certain equipment, turning off certain equipment and driving through. And then that gets a real baseline of what your submarine sounds like in different conditions. And you kind of understand what every single, uh, you know, running equipment, um, it's underwater sound signature is. And then you kind of go and tweak and do maintenance and, and things like that to get it to where we're confident that we're silent. Um, and we, we sort of have settings on some of the pumps that we can go into a kind of a silent setting, um, you know, and, and run it at that, that frequency that we know is the least detectable, um, underwater. I don't think it matters much about the depth you're at though. That is so interesting. So the next question I had for you is what is the longest amount of time that you were submerged? Yeah. The, the, as far as I can remember, it was 53 days. I, wow. remember, I remember one, one period of time when we were on. Can you imagine that? <laughs> 53 days. Yeah, 53 days underwater. Um, you know, there was definitely longer periods of time just out at sea where, you know, we uh, uh, weren't pulling into port. Um, but just without seeing the, you know, without getting out and breathing the fresh air, that was the that was the longest, I think. And I think even during that time, uh, I can't remember if it was that time or another time. It kind of blends together now. But there was a there was one time when we were under for a long time. Uh, and then somebody, and I think we were over and, you know, off the coast of China somewhere, somewhere we weren't really supposed to be, you know, um, uh, and, uh, and somebody got sick and they actually had to medevac them off. So we kind of had to, uh, you know, get out to where we're in international waters and could, could surface and a helicopter came and took this guy off, um, before we could go back into the spec op mission that we were on. Uh, and <laughs> Since we since we were opening up the hatches, we surfaced, opened up the hatches, get this guy off on a helicopter. The captain actually said, hey, anybody who wants to go stand under the hatch and look up at the sky can. Almost everybody got in line <laughs> to go and stand under the hatch and look up and oh, there it is, you know, try to get a, a breath of fresh air and then move on. You know, keep on. That was it. I mean, that's how kind of uh, deprived you are of just the real life situation. Oh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. I, like they, they, people talk about having cabin fever yeah. after being inside for a couple <laughs> of days during a storm or during the winter or something like that up in Minnesota where I used to live. Um, but being down for 53 days. So when you were talking about the air system, do you know how the air systems on those submarines work? I mean, how, how do they um, create the oxygen for you or is it huge oxygen tanks that are on there or how do they do that? Yeah. So, um, we do, we do have huge oxygen tanks and we make our own oxygen on a submarine. So basically you take the seawater in, you evaporate it off in the re really large evaporator where you kind of, uh, you know, boil off and, and pump the brine, pump the salt overboard and, and, uh, take the fresh water and put it through kind of a set of filters. And, uh, and then that fresh water goes through, uh, an, ele an electrolysis machine, uh, that's basically just pumping a lot of electricity, uh, through, uh, you know, these coils and then you're running the water. Now it's not like water and electricity meeting and, and that kind of thing, but you're basically, uh, atomizing the uh, water molecule to the point where you're you're cracking it. You know the the oxygen and the the hydrogen separate, uh, and we would just basically pump the hydrogen overboard and pump the oxygen into these tanks, keep those filled up, and then uh, you just bleed it out. You know, kind of constantly into the uh, people spaces. And then there's you know uh, CO2 scrubbers. All the carbon monoxide that we're breathing out has to go through scrubbers to get that back out of the atmosphere. So it's a pretty uh, um, complex, uh, you know, system for kind of maintaining that that habitat, you know, that that uh, we want on there. You know, 
and a funny thing about oxygen, I mean, you see like in football games and stuff, the guys like run and then they put the, the mask on or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, getting a little bit of extra oxygen can pump you up a lot, you know. And so in our normal atmosphere is like 19, 20 percent oxygen. Right. Um, and, you know, on a submarine, sometimes when, you know, hey, an admiral's coming on board or we're going to. Uh, you know, bring on some guests and we want the, the ship to look great. You know, we're going to do what we call field day. Everybody clean, everybody just all hands on deck, working hard to get this place looking the best we can. They'll crank the oxygen up to like 22, 23, you know, and everybody's just going, you know, like we're just, yeah, this is the funnest thing I've ever done kind of a thing, you know, and, and so they'll, they'll do that. You can kind of manipulate it a little bit that way. That's so cool. Yeah. So you met your wife, Maria, when you were stationed in Hawaii. Yep. So where do you guys meet at? That's <laughs> a funny story. So, uh, I mean, she was on vacation with her girlfriends. There's kind of a five, I think it was five of them who just all decided to go to Hawaii together. Um, I was, uh, me and a buddy of mine back then I rode a motorcycle. He had a motorcycle. We were kind of, we'd like just ride around the Island and stuff like You're that. Like Tom Cruise. Oh yeah. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why not? Right. You're right. Navy, you know, <laughs> you're in Hawaii. Let's go. So, uh, so, yeah, so we had gone and got haircuts at the mall. And then, you know, normally we would head right over the island. We lived on the opposite side of the island. And uh, and there's a, a highway called H3 that kind of goes up through the mountains and to the other side. And that's the fastest way home. But I had said, yeah, let's let's we're not in a rush. Let's go, you know, the long way go around the island through Waikiki and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we're riding on our bikes. We're, you know, heading right down that kind of strip right there in Waikiki, uh, right along the water. And next thing you know, we just hear all this screaming. Yeah. You know, like what's going on? I look back, and there's a jeep with five girls in it screaming at us. All right, you know, slow up. You know, slow up. <laughs> Let them catch up. And so, you know, yeah, kind of slow up, and and they catch up alongside of us. And uh, Maria and one of her other friends jump out of the jeep. She jumps on my bike. The other one jumps on my buddy's bike. And uh, we just start riding and the Jeep just following us with the other girls in it. <laughs> and, and they're like, where are you going? I'm, We're going home. Cool. Let's go. You know, and so <laughs> end up going all the way back to our house, you know, cracking some beers, hanging out get to know these girls. And uh, they were, you know, in Hawaii for about five or six more days after that. So uh, kind of hung out, went to clubs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh and then, you know, they left. I, I thought that probably I'd never see her again. You know, I got her number just in case and kind of figured, all right, that's probably never see that girl again. And um, and then I was I had a pre-planned visit home uh, to Seattle and we, we, we had these things called Mac flights, military. I don't even know what the Mac stands for. It's basically you get on a, a military plane and you can kind of just get on for free as a as a as a uh, active service member. And um, you know, the risk there though, is it doesn't always go where you're expecting. Right. So the one I got on was supposed to leave uh, Hickam air force base in Hawaii and go straight to McCord air force base up in Washington. Uh, but it got sidetracked and it landed in San Diego. Uh, and then they said to us, well, we're going to be stuck here a couple days, um, before we take off again. I'm like going, oh man, you know, I'm stuck, I'm stuck in San Diego. And I'm like, well, that girl, she's from California, you know? And she said she's from San Jose, San Jose, San Diego. It must be kind of close, sand. right? It's the sand and they're going to be pretty close to each other. Let me call her up. So I call her and she's like, yeah, it's not really close, but you know, you can get like a $69 Southwest flight up here and I'll pay for it. And I was like, done. Bang. You know, so <laughs> hopped on a Southwest flight to San Jose and uh, hung out with her for a few days. Ended up still going back to Seattle, then came back and hung out with her for a few more days. And 
And that was when, you know, it was like, okay, you know, maybe we try to keep this thing going. Uh, and, you know, I went back to, to Hawaii and um, she, she was working at Applebee's at McCarthy Ranch down here in Milpitas at the time and uh, had a pretty good gig with her boss there where she would just kind of work and save up enough money to buy a plane ticket to Hawaii. And then she'd come and visit me and hang out until either she got sick of me or ran out of money and needed to go back. And then she'd fly back and did that a few times off and on for a year. And then in your twenties, that sounds like paradise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you fun. know, <laughs> it was a good time. So my question is, did the other guy on the other bike marry the other girl? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, he didn't actually. So, uh, and, and we're still friends with, uh, you know, she's a good friend of my, uh, my wife. So she is now uh, married and, and has kids and that kind of thing, but not, not to him. <laughs> so you were in uh, the Navy for six years. Yep. And uh, when you came out, like one of the things you were talking about is the, the person who gave you the advi advice to maybe look away from being a ranger and looking at the Navy or looking at something else. Um, it's an interesting piece of advice because I know many people, because I'm in the IT staffing business, many people who come out of the service have a really tough time getting civilian jobs. Um, and I, we actually work with uh, an organization that we sponsor called the VPMMA. <clears throat> and they help to sponsor, um, they, they sponsor uh, project managers who are coming out of the service and get them into project management positions in the civilian world. Um, and uh, my question to you is coming out of the service, um, what was your experience with finding your first civilian job? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that difficult for me, but what you're saying is, is accurate. And I think that's exactly why that guy had given me that piece of advice. I think a lot of things that people do in the military don't apply directly and, um, and it can be challenging, I think, to, to get out. But, um, you know, basically working in the nuclear power propulsion world, um, not only do you kind of have those avenues available to you to just go work at a nuke plant or some other kind of power plant, um, but Navy nukes, they call them Navy nukes, uh, have kind of made a name for themselves in the civilian world as well as being just really well-rounded, um, just solid employees who have had a lot of success. So there are a lot of companies out there who actually go looking for Navy nukes who are getting out because they've just had great success with with um, people who have that training and skill set. Uh, and so um, I used a company, uh, I, I was working with a couple different companies um, who do uh, you know, military placement. Um, uh, there's one particularly, uh, Orion that I worked with. And, and so they, you know, what they do is they kind of, uh, uh do these big conferences, like in a embassy suites where, um, you know, they'll have a hundred people getting out of the military and 15 or 20 different companies looking to hire people getting out of the military. And, uh, and the companies will come in and kind of give a presentation to everybody. And then, um, you go and just interview. And, and so, you know, as a, as a candidate at one of these conferences, I'll go and interview with maybe six to 10 different companies, all just back to back to back to back throughout the day. Right. Um, and, uh, and I got an offer, I got a few offers, but the one that I accepted was, uh, from a company called, uh, fuel cell energy up in Connecticut. Um, this was meanwhile, we were living in San Diego at the time we had started in Hawaii. The boat changed home ports to San Diego. Uh, so I was at station at Point Loma, uh, submarine base in San Diego at the time. And, you know, wasn't looking to move to Connecticut, but at the same time, the company sounded really cool. Um, I, you know, 
nuclear power, um, you're almost, at least for sure at the beginning, going to work rotating shift work, right? Where you're kind of, you know, working that so, so many days of day shift, then you kind of have some days off, then you move to swing shift, have some days off, move to night shift, have some days off and kind of keep on rotating like that. I, I didn't want to do that. You know, I was kind of like, you know, I just, if I can avoid it, I would rather have a more stable work schedule. Right. Um, so, you know, I interviewed at some nuclear power plants. I kind of went that route, but this company, uh, Fuel Cell, uh, offered a little bit. It was still actually kind of rotating shift work, but it was just days and nights. And you'd go a month on of days and a month on of nights. And the schedule was actually really cool. So five days on, two days off, two days on, five days off. So every other weekend was a five-day weekend. And I was kind of like, that's pretty sweet. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I can, you know, go on a little road trip, get a project at the house done, whatever. So it sounded pretty cool. Uh, and, and you know, I took that, that job. It was um, uh, sort of a hands-on uh, technician level job, uh, s- kind of commissioning uh, these fuel cell power plants. Um, and, uh, and I enjoyed it a lot, you know. Uh, and then basically just kind of found out that there was another company doing the same sort of thing, but they were much kind of further behind, meaning, you know, they, they were just starting up and getting going uh, kind of, you know, in stealth, stealth mode um, in the Bay Area where Maria and her family was all from. So um, uh, ended up interviewing with them and, and ended up only kind of working at Fuel Cell for a year before I made the transition to move back to California uh, but yeah, it was, it was not a, it was not a, you know, that as difficult as I think some other people have it. I mean, when, when I go to those hiring conferences, it was not just Navy nukes, right? It was people from all branches, uh, and all different, um, rates. Uh, so, you know, I did, you know, kind of get to know some guys who were there who were, you know, um, having a lot more struggle than I was to find a job because they were, you know, had a job in the military where they just kind of, they, they did a job that didn't really apply and translate well to the, to the civilian world. So, um, you know, I think different people have different experience. I would definitely, uh, you know, um, the Navy nuclear propulsion program is, is one that I think if, if you're looking to, uh, you know, have that military experience, maybe get out and do something, um, see the world travel, kind of do something different before you go to college or go to, uh, get a job. It's it's a it's a great one because not only the um, you know the uh, just the relationships that I built during that time, but the the skill sets that the skill set that I developed has has allowed me a lot of opportunities since I got out. And I think that uh, a lot of a lot of what stands in people's way when they're going through any kind of transition period is the perspective that they have themselves. Um, if you think that you're going to have a problem, you're probably going to have a problem. Yeah, true. You know, it's like if you keep that positivity um, going on your side, then there's a lot better chance that a positive outcome is going to come your way. Um, now, you, after fuel cell energy, you went to Bloom Energy, right? Yep. Or what became Bloom Energy. That's, That's right. the stealth company you're talking about? Yep. Mm-hmm. Talk about Bloom because you were there for a long time. That's when... When I met Maria, uh, you were at Bloom Energy. Yeah. And then uh, you were there for like 13, 14 years? 14 years, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, great experience. I mean, uh, when I got to Bloom, it was, you know, there were maybe 60 people, you know, in the whole company or something. At least that, that's kind of, I think I think about the number that was there. Uh, and it was, you know, this big empty office building. Um, we had, you know, uh, just kind of vast amount of space where there was no cubicles in this little kind of corner where there were some cubicles. And, 
and we had like a big sort of lab where we were developing the, the product. And, you know, when I interviewed, I kind of, you know, did, you know, did the tour. I, I look around and said, this is it. You know, like these things look like some, you know, kind of college student science project or something, you know, like something probably so, was. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> basically what it was, you know, it was, it was a bunch of scientists tinkering, trying to get something to work, you know, um, you know, they weren't very big. They looked kind of like the size of a small mini fridge or something, you know, and, and kind of, uh, I'm going, all right. And I was a little bit hesitant, you know, because I was like, okay, I, I don't know if this company's even going to make it, you know, they're, they're very early stage. Um, you know, luckily through the interview process, uh, I took a few nuggets out of it that sort of made me feel really good about where the company was going and the financial backing it had and, and just the technology itself. And, um, so I kind of took the plunge. I said, I'm young, you know, might, might as well, you know, I'm, I can go into, if the company fails in a few years, I'll find something else. You exactly. Know? So, you know, so we, we did it and uh, uh, it, was just, it was an amazing experience. I mean, you know, I, similar thing. I started as kind of a hands-on uh, technician slash engineer. I didn't have an engineering degree. My title was engineer, but you know, in Silicon Valley startups, a lot of times they do that. You're, you're a system test engineer, you know, without an engineering degree. You're like, right. You know, yeah. Cool. Thanks. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and so, you know, but it was like, I was, I was helping design the thing. I was building the thing. I was starting the thing up and, and operating it. I'd be at night kind of like falling asleep, trying to keep the thing alive at times, you know, stuff like that. And there's just like a few of us who, who knew how to do it and, um, uh, you know, real hands on. And, and, uh, and, and then as we started to, uh, actually ramp up manufacturing and, and decide, okay, you know, we've got a product, it's, it's looking like it's going to work. Seeing a market for it, uh, we got to scale it up. We got to start manufacturing it. So um, I was offered. You know, they kind of said they came to me and said, "You know, you're the guy who's been building them and kind of knows them inside and out. You know, would you be willing to move from engineering to manufacturing and be a production manager and hire a team and start up an assembly line?" I said, "I don't know anything about that. You know, but I'll do it. You know, <laughs> I mean, if that if you guys want me to do it, I'll do it." Um, you know, and, and so I did. And so I was the kind of the first production manager at Bloom, uh, at first started with a team of like five or six people. I was only 28, 27, 28 at the time. Um, and, uh, and it was funny the day I got that job, there were actually some, some, uh, some manufacturing kind of techs, temporary guys who we had doing some of the work. Um, maybe it was these five or six guys basically, um, and uh, and the day I got the job, they said, "Okay, you're gonna start managing these guys, and and then hire more." One guy quit right away. He said, "This guy's like 26, 27 years old. This guy's like you know been working building stuff in Silicon Valley for 20, 30 years, and he's gonna start taking orders from me." Like he was like, "I'm out," you know. So <laughs> I was kind of like, I'm a, "On my first day of the job, guys are leaving already," and I'm like, "Oh man, you know, I don't know about this." Um, but uh, but you know, uh, worked it out and learned manufacturing. I'm really blessed to you know. Um, at the at similar time that we were ramping up manufacturing was when the Numi plant uh, down mm. in Fremont that built the Toyota Corollas and the um, t Toyota Tacomas and the Pontiac Vibes, that plant was shutting down, you know, and, and was kind of on the way to shutting down. And so a lot of, uh, you know, very, you know, really good manufacturing um, experts in, you know, in, in quality and manufacturing and supply chain and all those areas were looking to leave Numi, um, and, and Bloom was able to get a lot of those people to come to Bloom. So I had a lot of leadership, um, that was trained in the Toyota production systems, worked, you know, at, uh, aircraft manufacturing places, Ford, stuff like that. So I kind of learned, 
from some of the best uh, in the business when it comes to lean manufacturing. Um, and, you know, like I said, I didn't know anything at the beginning, uh, you know, just kind of willing to learn, willing to work and um, built a team. Uh, you know, at the beginning, we would it would take us like 45 to 50 days to build one of these things that we were building. Uh, and then we got at the point where we were cranking out 16, 17 a day, you know, um, at some point when, you know, before I kind of moved on from running the assembly line. So it was kind of a, a pretty major ramp um, up in, in our, what we call attack time, you know, kind of the cadence of producing stuff off the line. So, so when you're, when you're producing that many in a day, is, is everything pretty automated by that time? Some stuff. Um, yeah. The, 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 the fuel cell system is kind of a, it's very modular. So you've got, these, let's, let's do this real quick. Yeah. There's some people out there that might not know what bloom energy does. Yeah. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> what exactly uh, is the product? What's the idea behind bloom energy? Yeah. So the product is a stationary hydrogen fuel cell energy system. It's, it's basically like a little power plant that you put right at the point of use. So rather than the centralized grid that we're all used to and getting power from some power plant far away over all these transmission lines and all that, um, you put this pro, you know, you put this little power plant that's kind of the size of a, uh, you know, a parking space, couple of parking spaces kind of out next to your building and you actually produce the power on site. Uh, it takes, um, natural gas, just regular natural gas that we all kind of have in our homes and, and whatnot. And, and it, it doesn't burn it, but it basically breaks the, the, um, the methane molecule down that's in natural gas and gets the hydrogen out of it and then produces electricity through a, an electrochemical process, kind of a reaction uh, that happens on the fuel cell. Um, and, and so the benefits of it really is, uh, I mean, there's, there's several, it's very clean compared to traditional, uh, ways of making energy, like burning coal or even other gas fired, uh, turbines and power plants. Um, so with less carbon emissions, right. Lower carbon footprint per kilowatt hour produced. So it's a, a cleaner technology. Uh, but from a resiliency standpoint, it's, it's pretty awesome too, because, you know, a hurricane comes through and knocks down all those power lines and all that and whole sections of the grid go out. Right. What if you've got this thing right on site? You're good. Yeah. And all you really need is is the pipe underground bringing it the natural gas. And, you know, in, in most cases, even in earthquakes, but in almost every kind of natural disaster, underground piping is much more resilient than overground electrical wires. So um, in 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 situations like that, this thing is going to keep on producing energy for your, you know, your building. Uh, while everything else around you is dark, you know. So does it uh, does it create enough power to run a whole building? Yeah, so it's very scalable. So it kind of depends, you know. Uh, one of these systems uh, might power, um, you know, an office building like this, right? Uh, if it's you know uh, some of our some of the big customers like Walmart and AT and T, like these bigger you know places, uh, like a data center, you know, with like it's consuming a ton of energy for all their servers and all that kind of stuff, might have five, six, eight, 10 of these things, or even more, you know, 20 of these things. I mean, they're very modular, so we can kind of stack them all up and uh, and scale it to the size of the load uh, of the power plant or of the of the customer's building. So yeah, there's, um, you know, uh, anywhere from big box stores to hospitals, to data centers, to uh, things like that. We might, we have different sizes of installations and, and um, you know, the uh, they're bigger than what you would use at, for like a home. Uh, but they're, um, you know, the, the smallest building block is kind of perfect for like an office building like this. So then are they cost effective as far as the price of the gas going in there to break it down? 
is it cost effective compared to what uh, these companies or people are paying for getting electricity off the grid? It, it depends on where you're at. So, so that, you know, my time at Bloom was ultra focused on cost reduction. And it, it's kind of like in the energy world, it's, you know, pennies per kilowatt hour. How much are you paying per kilowatt hour? 12 cents, 13 cents, 14 cents. So, you know, it was all about how low can we get that number for our system and as you get it lower and lower, you open up new markets, right? So there's places like where I grew up in Seattle, in Washington state, where they have a ton of hydroelectric, right? They've got these big waterfalls and dams and they're basically producing power for free because as long as the river's flowing, you know, they're making energy. So electricity is cheap and, and we can't compete or Bloom couldn't compete there. You know, we, we don't sell in that state. Uh, but in California, energy is very pricey in the Northeast and in, in, you know, New York, Connecticut, uh, these places very pricey. Uh, so it was kind of through our whole, through the whole time I was there, it was, it was all a, a mission to get costs down, reliability up, make the product better so that we could open up all these new markets. And so it is very competitive and actually, you know, here in California, it's, it, it's better. I mean, it's better than, than the grid. It's more resilient. It's cheaper. It's cleaner. I mean, there's not a lot of reasons not to do it other than, you know, the company has to just kind of take a plunge and invest in something that they might not be that familiar with, you know? So. And you probably have a whole bunch of lobbyists from other entities that are going, we don't need that energy because you've already got this energy over here and yeah. we're making a ton of money off it. So let's, let's just stick with the traditional stuff we're doing right now. Yeah, that's true. So there was always a little bit of, uh, you know, our, uh, a lot of people would think that our competition is other fuel cell companies or, or solar or whatnot, but it's really more like the grid, you know, the traditional form of energy, like you said. Um, and, and so, yeah, there, you know, there's a, a you know, a, a local utility like PG&E here, you know, they're not stoked that Bloom is coming in and installing all these systems everywhere and taking away their business. Um, but the kind of the cool thing that we've seen over the last several years is that, um, I mean, with the wildfire situation we had a few years back and now even companies like utilities like PG&E are kind of going, we, we need a new paradigm. We need to change what we're doing. You know, all these these wires going through the forests and through, you know, towns are are not great. You know, so so co utilities like that are starting to actually partner with with Bloom and and buy the product from Bloom and go do their own installations and in kind of pocketed areas. There's also things called like grid congestion where there's like a. A part of the grid that just it's you know maybe there's a bunch of mountains or something it's really hard to get you know the the energy from the centralized power plant way out here to that little spot so the the local utilities kind of going we can take you know this bloom system and put a bunch of them out there in that little hard to get to area and and power that community that way instead of running a bunch of wires over the mountains and things like that so it's it's been um uh except you know we've as the company has sort of made more inroads, the utilities are starting to kind of get on board and realize this is here to stay and we maybe need to partner with them a little bit more and even uh, even be a customer. Yeah, you can coexist. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. I'm going to say this is awesome. <laughs> so you uh, were present at the New York Stock Exchange when uh, Bloom went public Yeah. and uh, were there for ringing the bell. Yeah, amazing. That had to be awesome it was cool it was a really cool you know it was funny my wife uh, maria you know she she used to say i'll bet you when bloom first of all my kids pretty much their entire lives all they've all, all, all they've heard for years and years 
well, when Bloom goes public, we'll be able to afford that. When Bloom goes public, we'll get the big house. When, you know, it was kind of like I was always, there was this, this carrot, this thing I was always talking about. The kids don't know anything about the stock market or anything, or whatever public means. There's like, I want that money. You know, but Maria used to say, I'll bet you when Bloom goes public, you'll get to go to, to New York, to the stock exchange, you know, um, cause you were one of the first employees and you did so much for that company and all this. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, like I was, I would be like our C-suite and like a, you know, a marketing guy or whatever, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, when, when we went to do the IPO, uh, Bloom did, um, reach out to kind of 40 or 50 of the earliest on employees that were still there. Um, and, and said, you know, you get to come with and be a part of this experience. Uh, and so, you know, they paid for me to go out there and all that. I, I ended up making it a family trip. I brought the whole family out, um, and, uh, took a little time off and we went and did all the New York stuff with, with the kids. Um, but, but yeah, it was cool. I mean, we went and ate breakfast, uh, well the night, the night before we ate dinner in the New York stock exchange. Um, and then that morning we did breakfast, the president of the New York stock exchange right there, you know, giving a speech, shaking our hands. One of our, um, uh, board members is General Colin Powell. Uh, so oh. I've, I've had the chance to meet him a few times when he's come to Bloom and done tours and things like that. So he was there and, you know, he's a he's a guy that everybody loves. I mean, every, he's a great guy and, and really fun to be around. Uh, so he was there, um, you know, and and yeah, we got to go out on the floor. Maria got to go out on the floor with me. So she was there with me. We, uh, you know, went out there and um, it's it's cool. You know, we got it. And she got, she got on TV on squawk on the street, you know, got her head in there, and, <laughs> um, you know, and, and just seeing, you know, my CEO who I, you know, had worked with all these years and kind of, you know, trying to make this thing happen up there, ringing the bell was a, a pretty cool experience. You know, I don't, I don't, not many people will get to, to do that kind of thing. And it was, it was definitely, uh, awesome. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, now you left bloom in early 2020. And like we said, at the beginning, you joined form factor. Yep. So talk a little bit about uh, form factor. Yeah, so form factor is in the semiconductor space. Uh, uh, we don't actually um, make the semiconductors, the chips, uh, but we make uh, test equipment and basically tools that the chip makers use to screen uh, the chips that they're making, you know, their wafers. Um, so, you know, it's a new industry for me. I didn't know a whole lot about the semiconductor space before I before I came into form factor and I'm still learning. Did you um, see a position open or did you know somebody or how, how did you find out about form factor? Yeah, I just found it. I uh, found the open position. I, I had kind of, you know, got to that point. I, I had always said with Bloom, you know, I, I would stick it out kind of to success or failure. And, um, you know, we did the IPO thing and that was kind of a big milestone for me. And, and you know, um, I was commuting from Livermore to San Jose, which maybe some people don't know, but it, it's it's a pretty horrible. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty horrible commute. <laughs> I mean, I was spending, you know, uh, three hours, sometimes more a day in my car, uh, you know, to go to Bloom. And um, and so, you know, a few years back, I had said, you know, OK, the IPO, you know, the IPO is coming after that. Maybe I should think. And then we did that. And then, you know, there was some other kind of um, goals and things I wanted to accomplish at Bloom. Uh, but, you know, the time did kind of feel right. So I said, you know, maybe this is the time to to start looking. And I, I, yeah, I wasn't desperate to leave Bloom because great company, you know, great job I had, but it was uh, something where I said, if, if I can find something really, really perfect for me in Livermore, you know, Livermore Pleasanton, maybe. Yeah. So you know, what's your commute now? It's about 10 minutes. Yeah. It's yeah, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. So, so, you know, I, that was my goal. I, I kind of said, I'll look for something. If something comes across, I'll go and I'll explore it. 
if not, I'll keep working at Bloom and we'll, we'll keep doing this thing, you know, but, uh, I found this opportunity at form factor. Um, it was, uh, it's in manufacturing. So, so, uh, you know, in Bloom, I had actually moved on from manufacturing, gone into marketing and product management, program management and all that. Um, but you know, sort of my, my, you know, my upbringing, my, my bread and butter at Bloom was kind of coming up through the operations group and doing all the manufacturing stuff. So I thought, you know, the, maybe I'll go back into that. It was fun. Some of the best times I had there was doing that. So I, I kind of thought this might be, you know, what I want to get back into. And when it, when the, uh, when I saw the job at form factor and I saw where form factor was, and I did a little research on the company and Hey, the company's doing great. You know, they're, they're growing the stocks price is going up you know, it looks people that, uh, people seem to, to like working there. Um, you know, it, it just seemed like the right thing to do. So I, I went ahead and moved on. It was, it was kind of interesting, kind of tough, you know, I mean, think about it been 14 years. I was, I was 26 years old when I got the job at bloom, uh, actually 25 years old when I got the job at bloom. Uh, and I was, I'd worked there for 14 years. So comfortable, kind of like, you know, I, 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 I was never going to get fired unless I stole something kind of a thing. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, I, I could have probably stayed a bloom for the rest yeah, of my, you had tenure. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so it was, you know, one of those things where, you know, making that move was a little scary, you know, but I thought someday I got to do it. And I'm, you know, still uh, only, you know, 39, I'm still not that old, you know, maybe now is the right time to kind of go make a move like this. And, uh, before I get too set in my ways and too kind of comfortable here, you know, and then I well, it's, it's an interesting thing because I was just thinking while you're talking, um, when your wife and I met, uh, we were working at a company in Pleasanton. And uh, during that job, my wife, Carissa, and I moved out here to Brentwood. Mm -hmm. And the commute, I didn't think it was going to be bad uh, until I drove it from Brentwood to Pleasanton, which was also somewhere between an hour and 15 and an hour and 30 minutes yeah. both ways. So, you know, you've got anywhere between two and a half to three hours a day spent in a car yep. commuting. And one of the blessings that I've seen come out of this whole COVID 2020 thing is that that whole nightmare commute thing is going to be gone for many, many people moving forward. Yeah. Because I think that people have seen both on management and from the worker side that we don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And the production is really there where we don't have to. Because so many of the managers from an IT staffing perspective that I worked with, I said, hey, would you consider someone remote for this position? No, no, I got to have somebody here. Yeah. Doesn't exist anymore. Because now they've all, the, the, the white paper is in, the facts are in, yeah. people can work remote. And it's really going to be a great thing for people moving forward because I think one of the big blessings that have come out of 2020 and COVID is that we all get to enjoy our families a lot more yeah. than we did before. That's right. So, uh, and, you know, bless you for being able to be close to the kids because we ain't getting that time back. Yeah. No, it's, you're, you're right. And that's been one of the kind of silver linings, I guess, you know, um, uh, got to spend a lot more time at home and, 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 you know, the entire time my kids have been going to school, you know, I was usually out the door early before anybody even got up, you know, gone, coming home, you know, at night, you know, and everything. So I, I really didn't even get to kind of experience the, like helping the kids get ready for school, seeing them in the morning, uh, you know, getting to know their teacher stuff. Maria handled all that kind of stuff, you know, and she kind of, um, was always a lot more involved with, 
with their school and, and with, with them doing their work and stuff like that than, than I could ever be. Uh, and I got to experience some of that, um, you know, over this last year. And it, it was definitely a, a little silver lining or blessing of, of, of this situation. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think a lot of, a lot of companies, it depends on the position, but a lot of companies are going to say, Hey, you know, uh, they're going to give people the option, you know, or, or say come in a couple of days a week or whatever the case may be. And yeah, it's going to help with commutes. It's going to help with people's overall productivity. Hopefully. I mean, you lose some stuff, you know, it's great to be able to pop into a room and whiteboard something or, you know, walking by somebody's desk and just strike up a conversation. All of a sudden you get like an idea, you know? So, you, you know, there's going to be things that, um, you can't really replace with zoom and, and all these, uh, you know, teleconferencing, but, um, you know, I think you're right. I think it's, it's, it's going to change the way people do work in, in the world. I think it's going to, it's going to force a lot of companies to hire the remote people because the very best of, you know, our whole business is it. So technologists, the very best technologists right now are just choosing to work remote. I'm only going yeah. to work remote. So it's like they're they're, they're kind of taking it off the table that they're even going to go in. Yeah. They'll go for meetings and like travel and stuff and go in and meet face to face. But it, it's going to be a different world moving forward. Yep, I think so. So um, kind of looking back over your career and looking back over your life, what was the most notable event in your whole life? We're going big here in your whole life that led you to where you are today? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, um, I could say going in the military, but really the funny thing is, is, uh, you know, even, even the first few years I was in the military, I wasn't, I wasn't a top notch sailor. You know, I was a kind of an average sailor. I, I, I still had that like party mode, you know, kind of a thing going on where I was like, you know, okay, you know, more concerned with like, when are we getting off so we can go to the bar, you know, kind of a thing and everything. But then, uh, the, the birth of my son, Sean, you know, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks kind of a thing. It was like, okay, wake up call. All right. I better you know, grow like, up. <laughs> yeah, it's time, <laughs> time to be an adult, time to get my stuff together. Uh, and, um, and you know, I, I really did change. And I mean, even people around me who work with me said like, I never would have thought that you would be like a family guy and, and like, you know, this totally, like you're a totally different person now that you have kids. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, I it's about them now. It's about, it's about Sean. It's about Maria. Um, it's not about, you know, just me having fun anymore. You know, I got, I got other responsibilities, you know, and, uh, um, and you know, like, so that was, that was, it definitely made me really kind of step up at work, uh, you know, step up at home, um, you know, and, and it didn't happen overnight. I mean, I still, you know, had plenty of, uh, um, you know, our, our Maria will tell you that the early years of our marriage was just like, I mean, she was young too. We were young, you know, both of us when we got married and she was a party animal too. And so it was kind of like, we both had a real adjustment to make. Um, and it, it took some years, but it, it worked out, you know? And so well, that, that was the turning point. Like, like I've been told for years and years, it's about progress, not perfection. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So who's the person or persons in your career who uh, gave you the most motivation or inspiration? Yeah, you know, um, so a couple of the leaders I worked with at Bloom, uh, I, I guess early on I, I found that there were, there was kind of a couple different types of people, leaders that I worked with. Some, you know, just were, they had that true ambition to just make a name for themselves and, and move up and make more money and get recognized, get promoted. 
uh, that kind of a thing. Um, and then there were others who just sort of like, just were kind of like, I'm just going to do my job and do what I think is right. And they didn't say the right things in meetings just to kind of get, you know, uh, hoping that that would kind of move them up. They would just say what was real and true and, and speak, you know, kind of call out when something was wrong. Hey, this is not the right thing for us to be doing as a, as a company. And I always respected that a lot, you know, and there's a a couple, you know, a few guys I worked with like that, who it it really, you know, I, I started to kind of model my behavior after that of like, you know, just, just do what's right. Just do the right thing. Uh, um, you know, uh, try to, uh, don't worry about what upper management thinks about what I'm doing. And, you know, sometimes that could go wrong, but I mean, I think in the, in the if you're, if you're really keeping the mindset of I'm going to do what I believe is right, uh, then all the rest kind of takes care of itself. And so I kind of saw that, you know, if I modeled my behavior after those leaders, um, good things just kept happening. You know, like I, I, like I said, I, I didn't know anything about, first of all, I didn't know anything about fuel cells. Then I didn't know anything about manufacturing. I didn't know much about any of these jobs that I was doing. You know, it was kind of just like, I'm learning on the fly, which is a, you know, I'm very thankful to Bloom for basically giving me an education and how to work and, and how to, you know, and so many things um, and paying me to, to learn it, you know, at the same time. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't really self-confident at the beginning um, that I knew how to do any of these things. Well, you know, so I was just like, I'm just going to keep on trying to do what I feel is right. And, and next thing you know, I'm getting, I'm getting promotions, I'm getting good raises, I'm getting recognized. And, uh, and I'm going, you know, so I, I guess this is the way to do it, you know, <laughs> just, uh, um, you know, try to be completely honest and uh, not, not ambitious in the way that I'm just trying to make it up the chain, you know, make it up the ladder, I guess, kind of a thing, just put my nose down and do the job and, and good things will happen. So, you know, the, uh, there's a few guys who stand, who, who kind of, um, I think uh, I, I saw that early on and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that those are the guys I chose to model my behavior after instead of the other guys you know i think the guys you were talking about at the beginning who are ambitious just for climbing up the ladder or just for brown nosing or just for whatever um that's actually what kind of changed with me when i read the quote that uh, this podcast is based off of it says that true ambition is not what we thought it was true ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of god yeah so true ambition is what you're talking about with the guys that you kind of modeled your career after just doing the right thing. Yeah. And then God, the universe, divine, whatever delivers for you and says, you did the right thing. You're now rewarded. Yeah. Um, those people who are climbing the ladder and doing whatever they need to for ambition's sake, you know, it, some of them get ahead, some of them don't. Uh, but I think that the, the things you're talking about are right on the money. You know, it's like, if I just go do the next right thing for the right reason, I'm going to feel better no matter what. And most likely I'm going to be taken care of. Yeah. So love what you said. So you're, you're a leader. You've been a leader for a long time. How do you motivate your team now, uh, under the new normal of COVID, um, how do you motivate people to, uh, meet goals, get things done, uh, nowadays? Yeah. I mean, so at, at form factor, 
you know, COVID hasn't impacted us as much as at, at a lot of other companies. I mean, we're considered an essential business. We're running the, you know, 24 seven manufacturing floor. I'm going into work every day. So it's, it, COVID hasn't changed things a, a ton for us. Um, you know, we, we did shut down for a few weeks and before we kind of got everything back up and going again, but you know, I'm in there face to face with, with the crew most, most of the time now. Um, so let me ask and, you a question about that. When you guys shut down right at the beginning of COVID, was there an, Oh shit, what's going to happen here? Yeah. You, you had just started the job, right? I had just started the job. Yeah. I'd only been there for a month um, when it, when it all happened. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, uh, you know, um, it, it happened really quickly too. I mean, you know, I, I, I think probably for everybody, right. But it was like, you're hearing oh, about this we thing. did. We said, holy shit, what are we going to do? Right. You're hearing about this thing in China and then you're kind of seeing, okay, there's a few cases here and there. And then next thing you know, it's like, Hey, you know, within a matter of a couple of days, it was like, everything's going to shut down, you know? And I'm like, okay. You know, so, um, uh, so yeah, we were a little bit worried, wondering what's going on. Um, you know, my, my boss, great guy. I mean, he, he assured me like, Hey, don't worry. I know you're, you're new, but you know, we're not going to fire you or anything. You know, you're just hang in there, um, figure out how to get stuff done from home while we all figure this thing out. And so we all kind of just, you know, shifted to Skype meetings and zoom and all that kind of stuff. And, and we're getting things done now the, the, you know, uh, at the time I wasn't actually running all the manufacturing. I had a very small engineering team, uh, and it was a couple months into COVID that I took over the large manufacturing team. Um, but those are the guys you worry about, you know, the ones who, uh, you know, their job, they can't, there's nothing they can do on zoom or from home. You know, they got to come in and build these things and right. test things and stuff. So it's, you know, really those are the people who you worry about and who, uh, are really impacted by it. And, and, you know, having run crews like that before and having a couple guys who were in that bucket, you know, of like, like, are, are we just going to keep paying these guys to do nothing forever? I was worried, you know, um, uh, for them more than for myself. Uh, and luckily it didn't last long. I mean, it was kind of a couple of weeks. We started to kind of bring the line back up in a limited fashion. And then we sort of got back to full speed within a few more weeks after that. Um, and then, you know month after that or so I'm going back into the office every day. So it, it, um, you know, people, there were some people who had to, you know, use all their PTO and borrow PTO and, um, you know, they were getting the unemployment checks and all that. And, you know, I was lucky to not have to worry about that too much because I could do a lot of my job remotely. Um, uh, but you know, motivation wise, uh, it's, I've always been kind of the same, you know, I lead by, um, uh, transparency, you know, I, I guess my thing is kind of, like I said before, I'm not a good liar. I'm not a good bullshitter. I, I just tell it straight. I, 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 you know, as a leader, sometimes, you know, you don't want to give every little bit of information to your team, but you, I've always believed, give them as much information as I can kind of legally give uh, in my position to them, because the more they know, and the more they know I'm being straight with them about what's going on, the more they're going to want to work for me, you know, um, and, and, and kind of rally behind whatever I'm asking them to do. Uh, so I've always been very transparent, um, and I and I continue to kind of lead that way at Form Factor. Um, you know, kind of talk. You know, it's like titles and all that kind of stuff's out the door. It's not like oh, I'm a director and you're a technician on the floor, and it's like, hey, we're just, we're, we're a bunch of dudes, you know, <laughs> we just got to get a job done, kind of thing. And I think that talking to them like that and being clear that like I'm not hiding anything from you, I'm not telling you to do something I wouldn't do or telling you to do something I don't believe in. Um, has always worked for me to kind of get 
you know, really strong teams. I mean, um, I mentioned earlier, right, that first job at Bloom where the guy left on the day one, right? Well, the other guys who didn't leave, some of those guys are my best friends now. You know, like, uh, yeah, I was their boss. They were kind of like, oh, this is like young kids going to be my boss now. And, and at first they were probably nervous. I was nervous. But like, um, you know, we, our little crew, and even as I grew, as it grew, was, was tight, you know, and, and I know those guys would run through a wall for me, you know, if I, if I needed them to. And because um, well, you do the same thing for them exactly you know so we were all in it together and so it's kind of um uh you know just being incredibly honest and transparent with the people that i lead uh has always worked for me and um and i'm gonna try to continue to do that you know and, and um and i think it it builds great teams i also coach football right at, at the high school and i've seen the same thing with the kids right i mean you know they want uh they 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 uh you know, they're motivated and they rally around a coach who, who they can relate with, who speaks to them as people and individuals, not just kind of, you know, um, you know, a kid that doesn't understand, right? Like I, I try to make sure that, you know, they know, like I was a kid and didn't understand it at some point either. So if I'm telling you this, it's because I learned it the hard way or whatever the case may be. And, uh, I'll, I'll tell them the stories about how I screwed up many, many times, you know, I'm not perfect. And that I think seems to, to really kind of motivate the kids as well. That's great. Uh, amen to everything you just said, because uh, I, I agree to- wholeheartedly. Uh, honesty, willingness, um, it, it'll gain your respect, you know, as a manager and as a coworker. Yeah. You know, um, so what is a good book uh, that you've read lately or you've read in a recent uh, recent past that you would advise others to read? Yeah, so um there's two. Uh, so one I read kind of about a year ago um, is the the Vanishing American Adult by Ben Sass, who's a, a senator, um, mm. uh, you know, U.S. senator. Uh, he, uh, you know, it's an interesting book. I mean, when I first I, I heard about it on, I think I was, you know, in my commute, right? I was listening to NPR or something like that and heard a, a little report about it. Um, and the title stood out to me and the concept stood out to me, The Vanishing American Adult. I thought... Yeah, you know that that is that that's happening. You know, like even even my generation, like in the next generation, it's it's even even more. But you know, uh, I guess I'm Generation X at the very end of it. I think maybe right on the border, whatever the next one after that is. But yeah, you know, uh, you know, he talks a lot in the book about how you know in the uh, early days of America, right? It was kind of like so much of the economy was uh, farming based, right, and things like that. So it was just you know kids had to work they had to work with their parent they had to work with their dad they they, you know they were learning a skill they were learning how to work at a young age because they were needed to and that's how family farms family businesses worked and grew uh but as time has gone on and and you know the economy has changed and all those kind of things there's a lot less of that you know there's a lot um uh, there's not as much need for kids to be helping out and working at or at least doing hard work, you know, uh, it, it really almost as a parent, you got to think about like, what's a good chore I can come up with for my kids so we can learn how to do something, you know, taking Bullshit. the garbage out. Too my easy. kid's doing something. <laughs> yeah, you know, no. I, 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 when you, when you told me about this book, uh, there's another book that a friend of mine turned me on to, which is called Hillbilly Elegy. And it's, a, it, it's along the same lines as this, where it's just like, it, it everything's changing so much. And, uh, the the American history of the last fifty years has changed so much that people don't know what to do. 
Yeah. You know, the, these uh, this hillbilly elegy is based out of Ohio, and it's all about the Midwest. And uh, they, they've they've lost so much there that all these people are doing meth, drinking Mountain Dew, and just wasting the day away, right? Because they have nothing else to do. Yeah. And it's it's it really comes down to that like vanishing American ethics. Yeah. You know, because when you and I grew up, totally different deal. I was in a small town in Illinois. You better go to work, boy. Yeah. You know, you want to make some money? Get your ass to work, you know. Yeah. So I bailed hay. I did whatever I could to make some money. Yeah. You know, and that that has led me to exactly sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. Because I was exactly. a kid who had to go to work and learn how to work. Yeah. And that, right. that's what I'm going to try to instill in my boy who's he's only 2 years old right now. But he better get a job. Yeah. No, you're you're right. I mean, and and you know, I was growing up in a big city. My parents were divorced. They were teachers. Um, so it wasn't like we had a family uh, business or something that I could work. But I mean, me and my buddies were pushing a lawnmower all around Seattle. You know, knocking on doors, asking to mow lawns, right? Like trying to figure out how to make some money here. And <laughs> you had to negotiate with the people on how much they were going to pay you to That's mow right. the lawn. That's right. <laughs> and you, you know, you know, it's funny when I just kind of. I remember um, a, a moment that has stuck in my mind forever about that. And it, I think kind of along the lines of what you just said, it's, it's helped, it's, it's sort of molded the way I've, it, it changed my work ethic. It improved my work, ethic, which is, you know, you would mow, you'd go knock on these doors, you mow lawns and 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever. And, you know, probably 80% of the time, the people don't even come and inspect if you did a good job or not. They just give you the money and you move on, you know, and uh, go knock on another door, you know, but I, I did my, my great aunt's yard um, one time, and, and she's an amazing woman, long, you know, uh, amazing life she's had, but she can be difficult sometimes, you know, and uh, she, I remember she came out and walked the whole yard with me, and well, what, that blade of grass right there, you know, that little weed, you missed that, and you're going to have to come back tomorrow, and, and, fin- and I'm going, I could have mowed five lawns, <laughs> you know, and made a bunch of money, you know, and, and and, uh, and then I come back the next day and she still wasn't satisfied with the work that I had done, you know, mowing her lawn. It was a three-day job. It was a big yard, but it was a three-day job because she, she wanted every single thing perfect, you know, and I was pissed. And I was just going like, I just want, I don't want to go back. I told my mom, I'm not going to go back and finish it tomorrow. And she's like, you better go back, you know. And <laughs> so I, I got the job done, but I have always remembered that. You know, and now, like when my son's mowing the lawn, I'm like, oh, you know, you, that, that line isn't straight or whatever. You know, and it, it just it, it made me um, it made me realize, you know, that you're not going to always get rewarded just for showing up. You got to actually execute. You got to actually uh, perform at a high level. You know, you have to get the job done to the way that that your customer expects you to get it done. You know? Right. And, and so in anything I do, I think it's stuck with me a little bit, you know, and I've always, and, and so, you know, uh, even after that mowing lawns, right. It's like, you know, I knew that 80, 90% of the people weren't going to check, but all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I want to know that I did the best I could do. I want to know I didn't miss anything. I want every line to be straight. I want to take pride in my work and be proud of the job when I'm done with it, you know, and, and that has stuck with me. And I try to teach that to my kids and, and, you know, it's a hard thing to learn because kids just want to get the job done, get paid and like move on. You know, and it's like, and, and and my son, he'll get mad when I'm like, you know, are you really proud of what you did? <laughs> you know, <laughs> cool. you know and it's like, well, you know, you're gonna see, you're gonna see later in life that you know, you you want to take pride in your work, and you're gonna be, you're gonna feel better about it when you do that. You know, so there's a lot of lessons there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pride in a job well done. Yeah, you know, and uh, 
You don't even remember the jobs that aren't well done. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I appreciate you being here today. I'm going to uh, end the podcast the same way we end every podcast. Um, so you've been through a lot. Um, you've learned a lot. So knowing what you know now, being through the things you've been through, what is your true ambition for two things? What's your true ambition in your personal life? And what is your true ambition moving forward in your career? Uh, yeah, I'll start, I guess, with career first. I mean, um, you know, I just want to continue to know that I have done my best. I know that uh, I, I've never I've never done anything where I think I am the best. There's always somebody who can do it better. But I want to know that I at least did the best I could do, you know. And so as I continue to grow uh, as a leader at Form Factor and down the road, whatever happens, I just want to know that um, I can feel like I, I have put my all into it and did my best. And I and I would like to know that the people who work for me and with me feel that way, too. And, and you know, I, I don't want to be that dirtbag, I guess, kind of guy who just kind of comes in and and you know, uh, sort of, you know, leaves early, shows up late, leaves early, doesn't work hard. You know, I, I like to work hard and I like the people around me to, to feel like, um, you know, that, that they're thankful that I'm working, uh, that hard. Um, personally in my personal life, you know, uh, it's, it's probably more in my, in, in my spiritual growth. Um, you know, I did not grow up a Christian. I didn't grow up really with, with much, um, going to church, uh, uh, we had it, you know, we, we my parents kind of took us to church and stuff when we were little, sort of they were feeling it out. Is this something we want to do? And then we stopped and um, and now they're 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 definitely both atheists and not um, not very spiritual in that way. Uh, you know, is maybe Maria grew up in the church and she was always trying to get me to go to a church and, and we'd go and I, I was like, I don't know. You know. I don't know. I don't like the way they're kind of cramming this one subject down my throat, you know, and I don't know if I agree with that, you know, this and that. But we found a great church, you know, six, seven years ago, and uh, and I got, you know, really into it. And I I really um, uh, over the over that this last six, seven years have been trying to grow spiritually uh, and to the point where I'm doing more in my life, you know, uh, for God, not just for me and my family and and um, and kind of putting putting him first and and. Uh, it's tough. It's that when you don't grow up with that, it's really hard to uh, to make that be a centerpiece of your life and um, and, you know, uh, maybe make sacrifices, you know, in order to kind of um, say what, you know, what what would God want me to do here? What what should I do for should I, You know, if I do this, am I doing it for him or, or am I doing it for me kind of a thing? And maybe I shouldn't do that if it's just for me. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, buy that thing or what, you know. So I, I think that's where I, I want to grow in my personal life. And I, and I really want, um, you know, my kids to, uh, I, I want that, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that they need to make their own decisions and sort of go and explore and have their own adventure, write their own book sort of a thing. And maybe, you know, stumble and fall a few times to kind of, uh, you know, learn from it and get better. But I, I hope that they'll, um, as they kind of leave the nest over the next few years, at least the older ones and, uh, that they'll kind of take, they'll say, oh, at least, you know, dad had a spiritual, uh, 
foundation and was grounded in a certain way that they'll kind of take with them and, and carry that through life. So, so it kind of helps guide them. Love it. The teacher will appear when the student is ready. Yeah. You know, or willing. And, uh, you know, I, what you just said about, uh, the kids traveling and learning, I think that was a big part of, uh, the book, um, that, uh, you had said, uh, but sassy, is that his name? Yeah. Right. That, uh, you know, he talked about going out and traveling all over yeah. uh, Europe, I think, yep. on a st- shoestring budget just to prove he could do it and yeah. see the whole world. Yep. So uh, I appreciate everything you've uh, talked about today. It's been very interesting. I knew nothing about nuclear submarines, <laughs> and now I know just a little bit more. Not much more, but a little bit more, and I appreciate you talking about it. Yeah. So give your best to the family. And uh, 2021, baby. It's got to be better than 2020. Here we go. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll talk to you later. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition.